supposed to pledge allegiance to the flag, and I understand that in its proper context, but we can't, we have to pledge our allegiance to Christ alone, because Christ is the one we must obey. So if the government tells us you can't preach the gospel, we have to graciously disobey, like our brothers and sisters in China are doing, we may need to do that one day as well, as our brothers and sisters in, in Iran are doing that. We must one day do that as well. This does not mean that we do not submit to the governing authorities, but it means that we do not seek political means to bring about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and his laws govern the church. In the church there is neither slave nor free. Therefore, Paul does not address the issue of slavery, at least not uh, directly. And the book of Philemon is not a treatise on abolition. In his commentary on Philemon, Scott McKnight states, One might think that we are settling for too little in thinking Paul's letter is not about manumission. But if so, we ought then to point a long finger at Paul for failing to live up to his Magna Carta lines in Galatians 3.28, 1 Corinthians 12.13, and Colossians 3.11. Rather, I want to contend that we are not settling for anything less than Paul's socio-ecclesial revolutionary kingdom reality in the house churches themselves. It is a grassroots level revolution. It is concerned with the ecclesia, that is the assembly, or we call it the church. We must conclude then that Paul was not disturbed by slavery as an institution. <clears throat> However, Paul's epistle to Philemon does address the church today in the particular context in which we find ourselves. So then as an introduction to the letter of Paul to Philemon, we will consider Philemon 1-3. to First, we will look at these items, authorship, recipients, purpose, and Paul's commendation of grace and peace. And some of the points will be a little longer than others, so bear with me because they're not all equally, they're not equally, there's not, they're not equal at all. So, But before we consider that, let's pray. <clears throat> Our God in heaven, we do thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We need wisdom to live in our day as the church in Paul's day needed wisdom to learn in, in, the, in his day. We need to understand that uh, the social situation is not really our concern. It's not that we don't vote. It's not that we don't even maybe join in a protest. It's not that we don't pray together with brothers and sisters from other churches and, and from different races. Um, that's all well and good. But we're here to preach the gospel because it's only the gospel that's going to change the hearts of racism. It's only the gospel that's only going to change the hearts of prejudice, however that, pre however that prejudice is directed. It's only the gospel that changes our heart and brings us back to a living relationship with our Father. And so we cannot take our eyes off of what Christ has called us to do. He has called us to worship, but that is not the only thing that He's called us to do. He's called us to make disciples of all nations. 
and all we could say that of all of every kindred people and tongue. That's the focus of our of our ministry. We are not here to become the President of the United States. We are not here to become a Senator or a Congressman, though if we did those things it would be okay. But the church exists to proclaim that the Kingdom of God has come and that Jesus is the King, the only King, to whom all men, whatever race, Whatever nationality, whether young or old, male or female, all must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And that can only come through the preaching of the gospel until that great day when you, uh, when the Lord Jesus returns and then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And to that day we all look forward. Give us wisdom now as we seek your mind in the words of Paul to, the, to Philemon. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm gonna, sorry, I have to sit down. Can, they see, can you see me now? Okay, all right. Well, first of all, let's look at the authorship of the epistle. Paul says, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, or really a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, the brother. Paul and Timothy are the authors. However, I doubt this means that both wrote the letter. It may indicate that Paul dictated the letter to Timothy, who wrote it down. However, at least part of the letter was written by Paul, For he states in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. It may also indicate that they collaborated or corroborated together in in the writing. Um, It's my personal opinion that the letter represents their combined concern for Onesimus and Philemon's reconciliation. So they may have both had had a part in writing the epistle, but... Maybe Timothy wrote the majority of it at Paul's dictation. Paul himself identifies as the prisoner of Christ. Now the word prisoner indicates two ideas. First, Paul was imprisoned when he wrote the letter. Now the popular opinion is that he wrote from Rome. However, Paul writes in Colossians 4, 7-9, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, that is, he's part of the Colossian congregation, they will inform you about the whole situation here. And so letter to Colossians and to Philemon were carried by the same hands at the same time. Since Onesimus was a runaway slave, Ephesus seems to be the better alternative. Rome is more than 1,000 miles from Colossae. Ephesus is only 120 miles from Colossae. It would have been far more likely that Onesimus went to Ephesus. Additionally, Paul indicates in Philemon 22 
that his hopes for release, which will enable him to travel to and stay with Philemon. If Paul were in Rome, it seems unlikely that he would travel 1,000 miles east to Colossae before he went west to Spain, which he indicates were his plans in Romans 15.24. So, Paul is a prisoner. The question is where? And it's most likely, or at least commentators agree, most likely he's in Ephesus and not in Rome. Well, how do we know about any imprisonment in Ephesus? There's nothing recorded in the book of Acts. Paul doesn't mention it in the book of Philippians. So how do we know that he was a prisoner in Ephesus? Well, in Ephesians, or in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul writes that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And that may mean that he fought wild beasts literally, or it may be that he fought wild beasts in terms of uh, people being opposed to him. Uh, but it, in, it seems to imply, I shouldn't say that it is. it does imply, it seems to indicate that Paul was in prison in Ephesus. And that fits better with this, uh, this letter to Philemon. When a slave would run away, usually what he would do would be to run away to a locale where he could find work and go unnoticed. Now, Rome is really a good place for him to go because it was a big city and a lot of people were there. But Ephesus would have been a good city too. There were tradesmen up there, silver workers, you remember about them. And so um, it may be that uh, he was in, that Paul was in Ephesus and Onesimus, Onesimus ran up there to get away from Philemon. So that's the first idea that's reflected in that term, uh, a, sir or a prisoner of the Lord. The second idea reflected in the word prisoner is that it reflects an, uh, an analogous situation or analogous condition with Onesimus. In prison, Paul would be in a situation wherein he was shackled. He would be totally dependent on others for his food and water. In part, the guards may have provided those necessities. However, it is more than likely that Paul's friends would have provided for the bulk of his needs. So then he identified with the situation about which he wrote. Again, Scott McKnight comments, the term prisoner also intentionally identifies Paul with the analogous marginal condition of Onesimus, who could well have experienced the humiliation of being shackled. One in bonds in prison is far closer to the slave Onesimus than Philemon. So Paul was in prison because of Christ. He is the prisoner of Christ Jesus, that is, the Messiah Jesus. And the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, was the king. He's the king of Israel. He's the king they were expecting to come. Romans did not call Caesar king. He was their ruler. He might have been their dictator, but he was not their king. He was the one who enforced all the laws. All final decisions went to him, but he wasn't called a king. Um, but the church referred to Jesus as king. And Jesus ushered in an alternate, an alternate kingdom represented by the church. And Paul was a prisoner of his king, that is Jesus. As one writer puts it, this real imprisonment is, is set in relation to Christ and the gospel. Christ is the author, we might say, of Paul's imprisonment. 
He is the one for whose sake it is fulfilled, and also the one to whom human self-will should be offered in sacrifice. The whole fate of the prisoner is lifted up into the sphere of the Lord. So Paul's not there because he'd done something wrong according to worldly standards, though he may have offended people, that's no doubt. But he was imprisoned for Christ because of Christ. You know, and the lesson that we learn from that is not this, you know, don't let yourself get in trouble for breaking a, a human law. You know, if you're going to get in trouble for something, let it be because you're a Christian. If people are going to condemn us, let them condemn us because of Christ. And they're surely to do that because the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. And it's, it's really foolish for us to believe that the gospel is not foolishness to the unbelieving world. It's not something that you can reason to. It doesn't make any sense. God have His own Son crucified for His enemies? What would you do for your enemies? Well, we don't like them. <laughs> we might take up arms against them. Jonathan is And so we have to remember that the, the gospel is what Paul suffered for, and it serves an example for us to make sure that if we're, we're suffering for something, let it be for the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul includes Timothy as the author. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just, I'm just uh, really kind of cherry-picking some ideas from uh, this commentator because he, it was so extensive what he wrote. Um, but Timothy, um, you remember, was Paul's best friend, his closest co-worker and associate. While Timothy wasn't anyone who wrote any New Testament epistle or anything like that, um, he's in the background of everything Paul does. He's there to support Paul, to take messages to and from other churches for Paul. He's there to carry letters for Paul. You remember Timothy's father was a Gentile, but his mother was a Jew. And he probably came to believe in Christ during Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra, where Timothy surely saw Paul being stoned. You remember Paul was stoned there. But Timothy was also there and not circumcised because his father was a Gentile. His mother was a Jew. Uh, he had never been circumcised. So to avoid offense, now notice that, to avoid offense, Paul, had, Paul circumcised Timothy because he was laboring among the Jews and he wanted to avoid all, all offense. Timothy's mother was a believer and... Uh, Paul chose Timothy to be with him on his second missionary journey. Timothy helped Paul to write both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and he assisted in the evangelization of Corinth, and he helped write 2nd Corinthians, maybe, I won't say probably, the commentator says probably, but maybe, also he helped him write Romans. He always traveled with Paul, he helped him, in uh, writing Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So Timothy was a close associate, and he was someone who was, um, he might have been a, um, a, Paul's secretary when he wrote letters, 
Um, he may have, Paul and Timothy may have corroborated on different things as Paul wrote, um, but Paul was close to Timothy, and so as he writes this letter, he includes him in the introduction. Well, then let's look at the recipients. There's, um, there's four. No, there's three. No, there's four. There's uh, Philemon, the beloved and fellow worker with Paul. There's Aphia, the sister. And there's Archipo, or Archipo um, the fellow soldier, their fellow soldier. And then also then he writes to the church, which was in his house now, or in your house, that is in Philemon's house. Now, I want you to think, first of all, as you think about the recipients, think about how this epistle contrasts with other epistles. Um, after writing his commendation of grace and peace to the Galatian churches, Paul moves right to his point. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And after his commendation to the Corinthians and giving thanks for him, he states, for them, he states, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he addresses problems. When you look at the other epistles, he addresses problems there too. But in Philemon, he does not mention any issues related to the gospel. There's no errors going, there's no errors taking place. No one is divided and arguing with anybody. Nobody's denying the gospel, none of that. He makes no accusations or he doesn't call anyone to account for anything. I want to ask you to think for a minute, what does that demonstrate? If there are no problems, then, what, then why write this letter and why have it read before the church? I think it demonstrates that Paul was not concerned about the institution of slavery about which he writes. Actually, he writes about Onesimus. His concerns were with the church, the headquarters for the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom requires the removal of distinctions relative to race and social standing. The kingdom of God calls for a different form of servitude under the sovereign king, our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul writes to Philemon, yes, he is addressing the situation with Onesimus, and they all lived in a world that since written history, men have lived in. And that was an, a world wherein there were slaves. If you were not a free man or a citizen in Rome, you were a slave. That was your social standing. The difference between them and us is this. They did not enslave people on the basis of race. They, the people were enslaved for a lot of reasons. Some people sold themselves into slavery to pay their debts. Um, some people were made slaves because there was a war yeah. and 
you know, the, the, winning, the winning side would take other people as slaves. Um, so there were other reasons, but it was never based upon race. Romans were Romans who lived in Rome would be slaves. It had nothing to do with race. That's one of the big distinctions. I'm going to mention this later in in the series on Philemon. Um, that's one of the distinctions between America and and uh, the ancient world. Now it's also true, and I'm going to bring this out later, that there are a lot of slaves enslaved by England that were sold, they were white, and they were sold to the colonies. So slavery has always been an institution, and it's true that slaves were usually, that they could be treated very badly, but it's also true that slaves were not always treated very badly, and the reason is because they were valuable property. If you, if you mistreated your slave, who's going to do the trade, the work, that you that you that you bought him for, you know, slaves were some were a lot of times skilled craftsmen. They were the ones who did things for their masters, right? Why would you hurt somebody that was that was that was so important to your uh, sustenance? So there was differences. There were similarities, but there were differences, and I think those differences were important. And that's not to say. That um, that the church should not have stood against the slavery in America. I'm not saying that at all. They should have, and and a lot and a lot of them did. Um, but um, it is to say that there was a very it was very different in Paul's age than it was. That's why he doesn't address it. The Bible doesn't condemn slavery. It it manages it just like it didn't condemn polygamy, but it managed it, okay? That doesn't mean to say either that, that polygamy was okay. It, wa- it really wasn't. But the idea was to protect the people involved in it. And so, yeah, there was a, there was a management of it. Slaves were to pr- be treated in a certain way in Israel. And a lot of times they were released in the year of Jubilee, especially if they were Israelite slaves. But you just couldn't beat a slave. You couldn't do that, beat him. And if you knocked his tooth out, you had to let him free. If you hurt his arm, you had to let him free. So there was a, it was quite different than what we're used to. And we need to, when we read Philemon, we shouldn't read our context back into it. We need to read, we need to read the context of Philemon and place ourselves in it as a church. And so, Philemon, the beloved brother. Then he writes to, um, he also mentions, uh, Aphia and Archippus. Archippus. Um, Those two... Uh, are claimed by some to may have been Philemon's wife and son. Um, I don't think that you can dem- that anybody has can demonstrate that. I think you only uh, Aphia doesn't occur anywhere else in the Scripture. It was a common name in uh, Asia Minor or Turkey as we know it. Um, Archippus is mentioned in um, Colossians four seventeen. 
And we know that he had a responsibility, a ministry responsibility in Colossae. So, but those are the only things we know about these folks. So we, uh, it's probably not safe to say that that was Philemon's wife and son, but um, they're related in some way to uh, him in, in the ministry of the church that meets in his house. But we don't know anything else. Everything else is conjecture. So when somebody tells you that that that's what that that Aphia was Philemon's wife and uh, Archippo his son, uh, that's it's a conjecture, and it may be right. Who knows? It may be right. We just can't can't prove that because we don't have any information about them. But Paul includes them, and notice how he describes them: Aphia the beloved sister, or the sister, and Archipo, or Archippos, um, uh, their fellow soldier. So you have these different terms that Paul uses. He talks about himself as a soldier. He talks about himself as a slave. He talks about himself as an apostle. Um, uh, he talks about others. He gives them titles, and they're always mixed around. So soldier, servant, um, they're going to have... They're going to have an overlap in their meaning uh, and their significance, but they do mean two different things. A fellow worker is not necessarily a fellow soldier, but they overlap sometimes, and so Paul is free to use them, I guess what we might say, almost synonymously, though not necessarily synonymously. And then he writes, To the church which meets in your house, now, for me, the most curious recipient of this of the uh, is the church that met in the house. Now, the early church met in homes, and I think the first identifiable church building comes from about the third century A.D. Churches were never identified with buildings in the early church. Never, they were never identified with buildings in the early church. The word church means assembly and refers to the people, not the physical structure. If the church met in the open air under the trees, it would still be the church. Before there was a baptistry like we have, um, people went out to a body of water, maybe a lake or maybe a river, um, or they had water brought in for the purpose of baptism, but uh, you know they didn't have a building that had all these, uh, what do you call these, amenities? You know, they didn't have piano. Maybe they had a lute or something. I don't know. Uh, mostly they didn't sing with instruments. They usually chanted um, the, the songs, and most of them were psalms, though there were, early, there were a lot of early hymns that were written. Um, but the church was the people, and the church is still the people. That's why I don't call this room a sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary. We have set it apart for our gathering together for the worship of God. But it's not a sanctuary. Um, the sanctuary is in heaven, if you want to look at it that way. This, is, this, this, this place is special because we meet here. That's right. The church meets here. So, the point I'm trying to get to, though, is... Why would Paul address this personal letter about a matter to the, uh, to the church 
that met in the house of Philemon. Why would he address what seems to be a personal matter between Philemon and Onesimus? It doesn't seem to include the rest of the church. Would that not embarrass Philemon? How would you like it if, if, if something personal to you and another were mentioned publicly before the church? What if I said, Tim and, and uh, Mercy had a big argument this morning and, uh, and uh, they had to be corrected and, and uh, disciplined and, and now they're, you know, they're getting together in church and they're forgiving each other. How would you like that? Well, you wouldn't. You'd be embarrassed, right? At least in our culture, we would be embarrassed by that. People don't like to be called out in public. Nobody does. You know, when people have called me out in public, and actually some of you have, it's not comfortable for me to have you do that. I don't, I don't get angry and get mad, but I just have to say, well, it's not comfortable for, me to, for, for you to do that to me. Well, it's not going to be comfortable for Philemon either, but that's what in fact is going to happen because Paul writes to the church as well. So why would Paul bring a personal matter before the church that met in the house of Philemon? Well, I can think of two reasons. First, that Onesimus ran away was a public matter. Okay, It was a public matter. Everyone in the church would have known Probably others in Colossae would know as well. Onesimus seems to have been known there, so it's likely that people in Colossae knew about him and other people in the church. Um, In fact, Philemon's house church may well have been either the church at Colossae, that may be what the church in Philemon's house is, the church at Colossae, or a church that's in that city. So the matter of Onesimus fleeing his enslavement was well known. Also, since Paul indicates that Onesimus may have owed something to Philemon, he may have wronged others as well. Right? People usually wrong more than one person when they wrong them. You know, so, you know usually offenses are not uh, in the church. They're not just with one. Usually you're bringing in other people too. And so his running away would have most certainly have set a bad example before the other slaves. If anything, it would have done that. It would have set a bad precedent for other slaves. The second reason I think Paul included the church as an addressee may have been that Philemon would be an example to the others, right? So Paul's going to have this, it's going to be read and the people are going to hear it and they're going to be sitting there going, well, what's he going to do? You know, are are we going to be reconciled here you know, Paul's not commanding him to receive him back. Um, in fact, we'll look at that later on, but he's not commanding him to do that. And uh, again, it, it asks us a question, how are we to treat those who have wronged us? Paul's asking that Onesimus be received and that there be reconciliation and forgiveness, restoration. Well, that's what should happen with us as well. If people don't see that, then what do they see? You know, it's not easy for anyone to receive and reconcile with someone who's caused an offense. It is always difficult to receive or to forgive because forgiveness requires death. You must die to yourself to forgive another person. 
are, 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 are innate response to people offending us is anger, vengeance, those kinds of things. To forgive does not, just doesn't run in our blood, right? It's not in us. So we have to die to ourselves and pick up the cross and follow Christ and do what He tells us to do and to forgive, not hold a grudge, those kinds of things. That's what's important. Philemon was wronged. Not only did Onesimus run away and abandon his responsibilities both for his labor and to, and to his owner, but he may have actually stolen from Philemon. If anything, he's guilty of stealing from him in the sense that he was not able to continue the work that Philemon had him doing. So now how does the work get done? Well, other slaves have to pick up for it, right? Other people have to pick up the, the lack or the slack. And so he's, 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 he's robbed Philemon, um, even if it's not in monetary terms, terms of I took money, but in terms of uh, removing himself from the labor. Therefore, Philemon would set an example before the congregation of someone who receives and reconciles, restores with someone who offended him. He becomes not only an example to the church that met in his home, but he also becomes an example of the church because he lives in a world that sees him. And he becomes an example to us of someone who is Christ-like and forgives when he had every right to withhold that forgiveness. He had every right because he owned Onesimus. Well, that brings us to the third point that I wanted to bring to your attention, and that is the purpose of Philemon. I think that the purpose is, is clear. Um, a lot of people write a lot, of, they write pages about the purpose of Philemon, the purpose of Paul, the purpose he has in mind. But I really think that it's, it's pretty clear. Though not stated, what Paul writes to accomplish is this, that Philemon receive Onesimus back forever, no longer as a bondservant slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Now that's what Paul says, and that seems to me to be a clear statement of why he's writing this. Why would he write it? I mean, he's not, he doesn't say anything else in there, but at least... Everything seems to revolve around this issue of Onesimus. So um, there may be some other underlying concerns. I mean, I can't deny that. Um, however, those concerns flow out of the main purpose of uh, restoring this bondservant who, or this slave who ran away. So I believe that one underlying purpose, other than the one that's stated, one underlying purpose is that Philemon manifest the love of Christ. <clears throat> As Christ Jesus has received us, Paul might say, so Philemon is to receive Onesimus. Did we clean up our act before Christ received us? Did we, did, we, did we stop sinning altogether? I'm never, you know, did you guys stop disobeying your parents right away, right now? Now I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm never going to... No, you don't do... Did you do that before God accepted you in Christ? No. No. 
And so the church needs to see in action what it proclaims with words. Words of faith require works of faith. Professions of faith require products of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 clearly states this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, or for the purpose of, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, we've been saved by grace, but then how does grace respond? How does the one who's receiving the grace respond to the grace? That's the point. And so God didn't just save us by grace so we could just go off and do our own thing. He saved us by grace so that we could do His thing, right? That's why He saved us. And we may never, ever forget that. So in this epistle, even though it's really not mentioned, you can see, as you read through between the lines, you can see that what Paul is doing to Philemon, to the church, and to us is to drive us to Christ. Back to Christ. Back to Christ. We have been freed by Christ. We are Christ's slaves. Now, how are we to treat others? We are to treat others like brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to receive people. It doesn't matter what their background. It doesn't matter what their race. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter what nationality is. It doesn't matter what language they spoke or they speak. You know, Spanish, whatever. Come to the church. You're part of Christ's body. And that's what, that's what we are. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of this world is going to pass, friends. You can vote properly, and I encourage you to do that. I'm not going to tell you who to do that. I'm not going to tell you who is the proper candidate. But I am going to tell you, vote properly. How do you do that? Well, vote according to not your conscience. A vote according to your conscience as that conscience is informed by the Word of God. Vote that way. Now, are you going to change the world by your vote? No. If the person you got you want, that you desire, got into office and became the president, and if every senator that you voted for because you thought that they were the greatest one, and every congressman that you think is the best one for the job, if they all got into the White if they all got into Congress and White House, <clears throat> would things change? Would you want a president making Christianity the state religion? No. I don't. Because it's sinners who are going to... Sinners are in the church. But we have not been called to take over the, the kingdom of this world in that way. Christ is going to take over the kingdom of the world in that way. One day Christ is going to come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, that will happen. And some of them will kneel and, and rejoice. They'll, they'll kneel rejoicing in the fact that He has. Others are going to kneel because they'll be compelled to. Yes. Amen. And so the only question is, which are you? You know, Are you one who's going to bow the knee joyously or are you one who's going to bow the knee because you're compelled? 
That's the question. And I think that's the question, though it's not stated. You won't find it in there. I think that's the underlying, one of the underlying themes of, of Philemon. The church is, is the kingdom of God. At least we could say we are the kingdom of God. That's, um, how do I want to say it? The church and the kingdom of God are, are distinct in one sense and the same in the other, right? So the kingdom of God is broader than the church. But the kingdom of God is part, or the, the church is part of the kingdom of God. We're the headquarters, as it were, that sends out the, the soldiers to, to do battle and to preach the gospel. So, and that's it. We are the kingdom, but we're not the entirety of the kingdom. And it's that kingdom that we look forward to. Well, that brings us to the last item I want to consider. And it's not a real long one. It's one we've thought of before. And that is um, the commendation of grace and peace. Paul puts this in, um, in all of his epistles. It's a, it's a Christianized form of a Greek greeting, a letter greeting. The, when, a letter, when someone would write a letter in... Uh, in an unbeliever would write a letter like when um what was it when the when the when they wrote a letter about Paul uh in the book of Acts it starts off greetings that's kyrene that's where we get uh, the idea of grace kyrene it's greetings you know it's, um and so that idea is then changed by Paul is specifically by Paul. He he changes a typical Greek uh, introduction or uh, yeah, an introduction to um, this commendation of grace and peace. Grace and peace to you through from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those words, grace and peace, are loaded with with um, with theological content. Um, as you think about them, now, grace in the Old Testament, you don't you think it doesn't talk about grace, but it does talk about grace. It talks about grace a lot. Um, God has always been gracious to His people. When He took the people of Israel out of Egypt, it was by His grace that He did so. They didn't do anything about that. You know, they didn't say uh, they didn't they didn't fight the Egyptians when they were chased across the Red Sea. God fought the Egyptians when they entered the. The, uh, the land of Canaan. It was God who fought against their enemies. Everything that they ever did was not anything they did because of their own righteousness. And God tells them that in the law. Don't think that it's by your righteousness that I have done these things, but because I love you. Right? I love you. I'm in a covenant with you. And so God, in His, um, when He deals with people in the Old Testament, it's always on the basis of grace, just like it is for us. And so the grace comes to the church from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could, I think, by implication, even mention the Holy Spirit in there, though that's not stated. But it's not just grace, it's peace. Now, <clears throat> peace in the Old Testament is shalom. And uh, it doesn't mean that you feel good about everything, though you may feel good about everything, but that's not the point of peace. Peace from God is not that you feel good about yourself and the world around you. Peace is shalom. It's, it's the entirety of life. It's that things are right in your life. Right? 
And they're not right in our lives, and that's why I think the peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the peace that we have, the peace that the church has, is a peace that's beyond understanding. The peace that the church receives from Christ is the peace of justification. We are at peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with Him. He is no longer our enemy, but we are at peace with Him because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5. And so, that's what Paul means when he writes these this little, just it's a little clause of, it's a commendation of grace and peace. He does it in all of his epistles. I think that it's in all of his epistles. Um, and, and the idea, if you think about it, is broader than just those words. Because you can think of peace in a lot of different ways. But the way Paul talks about peace, the way the Bible talks about peace, is our peaceful standing that we get from God. That's why he says the peace is from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's the Father and the Son who have wrought peace between, the, between us. We're no longer enemies. And so therefore... We are at peace with God. And that's how Paul then introduces himself in the book of Philemon. And next week we'll move on and uh, go through this book. I've never gone through it before, so I'm kind of looking forward to working through it. But today we've looked at uh, Philemon. It's authorship, recipients, purpose, and then Paul's commendation of grace and peace. All important details uh, that we want to make sure that we that we give attention to, because um, they're not just words on a page. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We thank you for uh, this letter of Paul to Philemon, and uh, our prayer is that you would use this in the life of our church, and I pray in the life of the church in the United States and around the world. Because there is such a great lesson to learn here about dealing with, um, with those who have offended us. Granted, Philemon is dealing with a specific type of offense. And Paul is dealing with an issue that is, that is a live issue in our day. And, uh, and we have to wrestle with that. Because people have used the Bible to do all kinds of horrible things in the name of in the name of uh, in, in 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 the name of slavery, and so we want to understand this epistle because it's so crucial to the age in which we live. We pray you give us wisdom and insight in the days to come. In Christ's name, Amen.